Axis Mundi. Axis Mundi. Hey everyone, as always, thanks for tuning in to It's in the Code. Before we get started on this week's episode, I just wanted to share something with you. Some of you will have heard this, uh, some of you won't, but if you could just give me a couple minutes here. It's 2024, it's election year, and it's one where we are facing what we think is an increasingly and, and really unprecedented authoritarian challenge to our democracy. And that's why we do this podcast. Uh, we do it in order to help safeguard democracy from religious nationalism and extremists and wannabe autocrats. And our goal is to connect the ivory tower with the grassroots in order to build a better public square. And we need your help to keep doing that, not just in 2024, but beyond. We just launched our Straight White American Jesus and Access Mundi Media subscription programs. For a few bucks a month, you'll get access to every episode of It's in the Code, uh, this series, premium episodes where Brad and I answer listener questions, ad-free listening, access to our 500-episode and growing archive, exclusive streaming of Charismatic Revival Fury and other series, and just on and on. If you subscribe, you will not only help us keep publishing episodes three times a week, but we'll be able to add more to the show. We will be able to do more in this year, including new series, regular content on Charismatic and Pentecostal MAGA movements, extra content with scholars and journalists. And, and all of those kinds of things. So all you have to do is hit the link in the show notes. It takes like two clicks and you're in. We couldn't do this without you. Now we go to It's in the Code. Hello, once again. Uh, welcome to It's in the Code. My name is Dan Miller, Professor of Religion and Social Thought at Landmark College. I am your host for this series. Uh, and as always, I want to thank all of you for listening. Again, ask if, you know, if you're in a position to subscribe and to support the, what we do at Straight White American Jesus that you consider doing so. All of you who email me, thank you so much. Keep the ideas coming. Uh, I am once again trailing in responding to emails. Not as badly as I was. My I, again, I won't call it a New Year's resolution, but my commitment to do better about staying up on emails is is there. It's there. It's holding. I just can't match the pace I had when I when I wasn't teaching uh, during the winter break. But I am still there. I do read the emails. Value so much of what you have to say. Keep the ideas coming. I'm, I'm always soliciting ideas for for it's in the code and and new topics and feedback. I've I've got a lot of them sort of in the queue, ready to go, have been doing this deep dive into uh, the concept of inerrancy that we're going to continue today, but other topics, uh, welcome your insights as well. So let's dive in here. As I say, we're continuing this deep dive into this conception that the Bible is inerrant, and, and we've covered a lot of ground here. And last episode, we kind of looked at the, the collision of two issues, right? One was inerrantists that's a hard word to say, inerrantists insistence, the insistence on the part of people who believe the Bible is inerrant, that the Bible is accurate, that it says what God wants it to say, right down to the exact words of the text that are used, 
And together with that, the claim that even though the words are what God wants them to be, it doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is factually accurate, okay? And if you're just tuning in, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Those two statements don't line up next to each other. Take a listen to the prior episode. Reach out. The bottom line is I've, I've suggested I find the doctrine of inerrancy to be incoherent, and this is part of why. If somebody says, how do you put those two things together? My response is, you don't. Uh, they don't fit together. Uh, and waving a magic wand and saying, but God did it doesn't, doesn't fix it. But that's where we've been. What it means is that all the words are what God wants them to be. They are without error, but it also means that being without error doesn't mean that they are all factually accurate let alone literally true. That's why they're not literal, literalists, to go back to an early episode in this, this series. So why do evangelical theologians advance this line of reasoning? And, and folks, I've been reading a couple of them. There are lots of others you could read. In my view, they're all basically the same here. They go through a lot of conceptual hoops and, and gymnastics to try to kind of square this circle. And the reason is, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last time, is that there are all kinds of things that would strike an uninitiated reader as errors, quote-unquote, right? Physical descriptions and metaphors, and I think the most significant for me are parallel passages, accounts of the same event uh, in the Bible that, that contradict each other, right? That's why they, they have to try to do this, is to try to reconcile all of those with this view that the Bible's without error and so forth, okay? So let's imagine that you've followed me this far. Okay, and you're res ready for Cousin Lenny, right? Kevin, Cousin Lenny, our cousin who's in seminary, he's an evangelical, he's reading the same theologians that I'm talking about. He's a little more knowledgeable than your, your average run-of-the-mill uh, churchgoer, a little more knowledgeable than Uncle Ron. But maybe you're also hearing from Uncle Ron's pastor, right? He's the one that, you know, when you send Uncle Ron the emails, that you're penetrating questions about the Bible, he has his pastor write the responses because he doesn't really know what to say, Okay. Let's imagine that you followed me this far, and you're ready for them. You've got all the points that I've raised. You've got them in your back pocket. You're ready. Next time you're at that cookout, and you've had a couple beers, and you're feeling pretty pretty loose and ready to go, you're ready, okay? And they come at you with all the lines of reason we've been talking about. You explain why they don't work, and maybe you highlight some of these examples that, in my view, these evasions can't get around, right? So, for example, there are two different accounts of creation in Genesis. There are two different accounts of Noah's Ark, the famous story of Noah's Ark, the big flood, all the animals on the boat, all of that. Two different accounts in Genesis. There are two competing accounts of the Israelites appointing a king and so forth. You can multiply the examples. And let's imagine that you finally bring up Cousin Lonnie or Uncle Ron's pastor short. Even they recognize that they just don't have an answer for those. They're straightforwardly contradictory biblical accounts. And the slippery moves that they've made to distinguish what the text says from what it affirms, we talked about that last episode, they don't work. Appeals to non-existent manuscripts that we don't have and never will, they just don't make sense. You've effectively brought the doctrine of inerrancy to its limits. Cousin Lonnie's on his knees. You're, a, you're about to deal the final blow to his doctrine of inerrancy. Is it over? Have you succeeded? No. What happens? Cousin Lonnie and Uncle Ron's pastor, they break the glass and they pull the handle on their failsafe. They have one final insurmountable line of defense. The inerrantists, when they're confronted with all of this, and you've amassed all this time, you've spent all of this time 
listening to frustrated podcasters, giving you reasons why inerrancy doesn't work, and you marshal all of that and you're there and you think you've taken away every line of reasoning they have, they have a fail-safe argument. You ready for this? Because what could it be? What could this final impossible-to-overcome line of defense be? Here it is. You ready? It is the fact that inerrancy just can't be wrong. It is just simply the assertion of the doctrine itself. That's their fail-safe. And I promise I'm not making that up. I, I, I could imagine a critic, I don't get that many emails from hardcore inerrantists defending the doctrine to me, but I can imagine the conversation where somebody says, anything you say, it's, it's overstated, it's not true. We don't just assert the doctrine and so forth. I'm not making it up. This is not a straw person argument to try to make an inerrantist look, look bad. I'm reading some of the best theological arguments, in their estimation, that evangelicals have to offer. And that's the fail-safe argument, is to just assert the doctrine in the face of all evidence to the contrary. And so let me prove it here, right? I'm just going to take another quick look at what Wayne Grudem and Millard Erickson, the evangelical theologians who've been sort of guiding me on this, this, this hellish vision of inerrancy, right, of what they have to say about this. So let's start with Erickson, kind of the uh, older, reigning kind of figure of these two. After running through several ways of dealing with apparent errors in the biblical text, we've got a long discussion of here's how you can deal with this and that, and you know, here's how inerrancy works and so forth. Erickson finally addresses the issue of what to do if there simply is no apparent way to explain those apparent, I say apparent, here apparent in, in quotation, right? The quotation marks, those apparent contradictions. What does he say? He says this. Difficulties in explaining the biblical text should not be prejudged as indicative of error. Oh, well, I mean, your whole doctrine is that the Bible's without error, that it is so clear and precise that right down to the words that are used, it's without error. That sounds like it should be pretty obviously without error. And here you are saying, well, if you find apparent errors, you shouldn't, you shouldn't assume that they're actually errors. Oh, okay, Millard, interesting. Why? Here's what he says. Quote, it is better to wait for the remainder of the data to come in with the confidence that if we had all the data, the problems could be resolved. In some cases, the data may never come in, end quote. He says, no, we just have to assume that the data to prove that the Bible's inerrant, it's out there. The data to fix those, those contradictions, it's out there. It may never come in. We have to know it'll probably never come in, but we just have to be confident that it's there so we can trust the doctrine of inerrancy. Grudem says something really similar. He says, you know, if we can't address the problems we find in the biblical text, and, and he, he makes really strong statements about how there are virtually no unresolved problems and so forth. I think everything he says is overstated in this, but that's what he says. But he says kind of the same thing. He says, if we do come to problems we can't address, this is because there are facts that are, quote, presently unknown to us, end quote. And he goes on to insist that because of this, they should not trouble us. Hmm. Erickson and Grudem, what, is, what does that mean? It means that the fail-safe argument is, even if you 
can show us, the inerrantists, those of us who claim we are quote-unquote biblical, we're the biblical Christians, we believe in biblical authority, we're inerrantists, we believe the Bible is without error and accurate and so forth, but even if you can show us errors we can't respond to, errors we can't explain, errors that there is no data or evidence to account for, even if you can show us that, hey, we're not worried. We're not worried. Why? Because we, we believe it's out there. The data is out there. The evidence is out there somewhere. Even if we never get it, we know that it's there. We trust in that. So inerrantists like Erickson are, are, are literally like, you know, hey, give us your best shot. He, sa- he says in one place, he says, those of us who claim the Bible's error, we, we should invite these criticisms. We should invite people to come to us and challenge our view of inerrancy with these purported errors, right? There's this tone of confidence. We're the inerrantists. Bring it. Bring your best shot, right? And of course, that's their tone because it turns out that no matter what that shot is, it can't disprove the assertion that the Bible is without error. There is literally no number of factual errors we could cite that can disprove the claim that the Bible is without error. Because even when their back is against the wall and they can't give you any, any plausible explanation or meaningful alternative or different translation or whatever they try to do, oh, they just, they just know. We can rest assured the evidence exists. We just don't have it. So there you go. We, we can still maintain inerrancy. Once again, the inerrantists have insulated their view of the Bible from any assault of reason, anything that, that those of us who are critical or skeptical about this doctrine, or even people who aren't like me, people who aren't sort of out to debunk inerrancy, they just want to understand it. They're open to the idea. Maybe they're even looking for the idea, the idea of a text that is divinely given and has all the answers and says exactly what God wants it to say is very, very uh, attractive in a lot of ways. Maybe it's somebody who they really want to believe that. And they just got some questions, real questions. And it turns out that there's, there's no answer that can be given other than the assertion that, that we, we've got the evidence. I mean, the evidence exists. We don't have it. But we have it because we know it exists. So we can just depend on it. Okay. So, so where are we? Let's, let's tie all this together. Let, let's review for a minute. The Bible is without error, right down to the very words that are used. Okay? But without error doesn't actually mean without error. Okay? So, we, but don't worry. We biblicists, like, like, if somebody says, well, without error, hold on. Like, here's this place where there's something that's not factually accurate. Or here's this place where... They're quoting, I don't know, the prophet Isaiah, and it doesn't actually line up with any manuscripts that we have. Or here's this account of a historical event uh, that we now know was inaccurate. That's not how it happened. Or here are these competing accounts of the same thing within the biblical text, uh, all purporting to be from God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those look like errors. Well, nope, 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 nope. Nope, there can be errors, right? Without error, saying the Bible's without error doesn't mean everything's factually accurate. So don't worry, say the biblicists. We can explain why all those errors don't really account at, don't really count as errors, right? 
and here's the logic again, folks. If the Bible says something factually inaccurate, that's because God wanted to say something factually inaccurate. So it's still inerrant and without error, even though the inaccuracies are there because the inaccuracies aren't errors because God put the inaccuracies there or something. Okay. Folks, I'm really not trying to reduce it to some, you know, caricature. This is the argument. Okay. And if you, again, if you're like, that doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't make sense to me either. Okay. But what about all those things we could say that seem to be errors or contradictions that, that we inheritance, we just can't explain. We don't have good explanations for them yet. No worries. We can just be assured that if we did have all the information, it would resolve those difficulties. So even unresolvable errors, turns out they're not errors after all. Contradictions we can't explain, differences in accounts, textual mistakes, what have you. No explanation for them. Don't worry. We don't need to worry about it. Those aren't errors either. It brings us back to a point that Gruden made a few episodes back, right? He said that inerrancy, it's basically a self-affirming doctrine. He says it's the witness of the Holy Spirit that compels us. The Bible itself, as we read it, commends itself to us as inerrant. And remember, he acknowledged and said, yep, that's circular reasoning. The Bible is the authority for biblical inerrancy. We're right back to that. What about all the contradictions? What about the mistakes? What about the things? Eh, what have you? Well, nope, we don't have to worry about those. Because why? Why do we have the conviction? Why are we justified in the conviction that the Bible is without error? Because we have the conviction that the Bible is without error. That's what it comes back down to. Okay? We've come full circle. Why have we come full circle? Because up to now, I've been kind of focusing on what a certain kind of Christian community means when it calls itself biblical. Go back and listen to some early episodes in this series. You know, I, I did an episode on what it means to be biblical or the concept of a Bible church. When a church has the word Bible in, the, in, in its name, or when you go to a church website or something like that, and you read it, and it says that they preach the Bible or the Bible is the authority or whatever— what does that mean? That's what we've been diving into. What we've been talking about under the name of the doctrine of inerrancy, that's what theologians call it, is what millions of a certain kind of Christian believe when they say they quote-unquote believe the Bible. When regular Christians say the Bible, they believe the Bible is literally true. They don't, they don't mean literal, they mean inerrant. I think what they mean is, is that every word in the Bible is literally what God wants it to be, but as we've seen, the doctrine of inerrancy is more complicated than that. Okay. What we've been looking at is what the doctrine of inerrancy is. And I've been arguing why I just don't think it works. And, and this is dear to me. This, is a, this was a big part of my own movement out of evangelicalism was the, the growing awareness that this, this doctrine of the Bible just didn't work. Okay. But here's where we're going. Okay. If you have stuck with me this far, if you've listened to this series, I know I've got a lot of longtime listeners out there who've been with me for a long time as we've done this series, you know that my interest isn't just in like, what is this doctrine of the Bible, right? What I'm interested in is what do claims to biblical authority do? And you can think about it this way. If the doctrine of inerrancy is so thoroughly unconvincing, and folks, I think it is, and I don't think it's hard to see. I think anybody coming to it 
from a, a perspective of just curiosity or analysis or something, somebody who's not already deeply committed to the truth of the Bible or, or whatever, it's, it's not hard to show that it doesn't work as an idea or a concept, okay? If it is so thoroughly unconvincing, why is it so prevalent? Why is the most visible form, the most active and vocal form of Christianity in America at present a form that holds this view of the Bible? Why are almost all of the, say, 25 largest seminaries in America, do they affirm this view of the Bible? Why is it so prevalent? Why does it persist in people like Cousin Lonnie and Uncle Ron and millions of other Christians who could not articulate it the way that the theologians do, but it's a gut-level assertion that they have? Well, that's what we're going to go look at. And looking at that, it brings us to the question of what the doctrine of inerrancy does, how it codes and structures high control religious practices in various ways. And, and, and to, I'll, I'll give you the, the punchline now, the plot twist. Surprise, surprise. For me, the reason it persists is because it is useful for high control religion. We are going to come back and see how this drop doctrine persists because it provides control and structure for a certain kind of Christianity in particular. There are also other traditions, uh, scripturalist traditions, where I think a lot of the same points would hold, right? But they're different, and they're different enough that I don't feel as, as prepared <laughs> to discuss them. would love to hear your thoughts on that. That's where we're going to go. We're turning a corner here. I've done the work to say, here's what the doctrine is. When people say that they're, they're biblical or biblicist or they believe the Bible, this is what they're talking about, and this is why I don't think it works. But what does that doctrine do? And that's my answer. Why does it stick? Why do people hold to it? Because it does some real things. What does it do? That's where we're going from here. That's the corner we're turning. Got to wrap this up. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for the support. Those of you who support us financially, again, uh, thank you. And if you would consider subscribing, if you haven't already, please do so. Bonus episodes, bonus content, access to the full catalog all of that good stuff. If you're happy just listening weekly and you sit through the ads and you're like, hey, this is how I support you. I sit through the ads. I get it. And I thank you as well. Thank you. And for everybody who reaches out with the ideas, questions, comments, queries, keep them coming. Love to hear from you. I'm always open to uh, new ideas, new topics. Please keep them coming and please be well until we get to talk again. Listening today, y'all. As a reminder, you can help us keep doing this pro-democracy work by becoming a paid subscriber. Get ad-free listening, access to the 500-episode archive, a premium episode, and more. Go sign up now. It only takes a few clicks. www.axismundi.supercast.com. The link is in the show notes. Axis Mundi.